Today's reading is taken from Romans chapter 3, verses 19 to 28, and can be found on page 1130 of the Church Bibles. So, Romans 3, starting at chapter 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. This is the word of the Lord. And uh, let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider these few words this morning, which are the heart of the gospel, and yet sometimes so hard to grasp, we pray that you would grant us clarity of understanding. Amen. Kingsley Amis, the novelist, said in a weekend colour supplement interview shortly before he died, one of the great things about organised religion is that you can be forgiven your sins. And then he paused for a long time and bowed his head. I mean, I carry my sins around with me. There is nobody to forgive them. We all have a need for forgiveness. The cause, in a different contemporary need, in their song, Everybody's Searching for Intimacy, addresses a different issue. Both of these issues are weighty concerns. One is how to have the burden of guilt lifted, how to be forgiven, and the other is how to find deep, personal, secure relationships of acceptance and trust. The Christian answer to the first is justification. The righteous shall live by faith. And the second is adoption. One we'll cover this week and adoption the next week. So, this week, how to get rid, how to get rid of sin and guilt and get right with God. Justification. The righteous shall live by faith. One phrase, six words. Today we call that a tweet. It represents the ultimate summary of both the Reformation and the Bible. 
Now, we can find this text four times in the Bible, in Habakkuk 2, 4, Romans 1, 17, and then expanded in the passage we had read to us, Galatians 3, 11, and Hebrews 10, 39, which all hint at the importance of the principle that is here, that faith is essential for life. The verse was the spiritual and theological driving force behind the Reformation. In 1519, while preparing a sermon on Paul's epistle to the Romans, Martin Luther had an experience known as the experience of the tower, which is where he was doing his studying. Luther wrote, At last, meditating day and night on this verse, the The righteous shall live by faith. By the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. There a totally other face of the scripture showed itself to me. This is, as I said, a great summary of the gospel and the biblical seed which gave rise to the great awakening of the Reformation with all its spiritual and social consequences. It's not an exaggeration, therefore, to say that we're facing the most important short message or tweet in life. To fully understand this passage, we're going to compare it to a tree. It has a trunk by faith, which is the heart of the matter, and two main branches, vital consequences, right the righteous and shall live. We'll pay special attention to the trunk and then more briefly to the two branches. So by faith, this is the heart of the matter, the trunk of this tree. But what is faith? Christian faith is not a question of believing in something, but in somebody. The key question is not what we believe, but whom do we believe? The Apostle Paul said, I know whom I have believed. The object, the recipient of this faith, is a living being, the personal God, revealed in the Bible and incarnated in Jesus Christ, not an abstract, impersonal force. So what does this faith mean in practical terms? Well, faith involves three steps. These are precisely the the steps that are found in any love relationship. The first is get to know someone. The second is learn to trust them. And finally, committing to them, as you do at a wedding. You walk in single with your old dad and you walk out married with a young husband. Now, such steps broadly correspond to Martin Luther's spiritual experience and the conclusions that became the foundations of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, by Scripture alone. 
sola gratia, by grace alone, and sola fide, by faith alone. Faith means knowing, faith means trusting, and faith means committing. And sometimes this can be rather counterintuitive to us. Just reflecting on Janet's um, illustration of the lifeguard. I, at school I learned I did a course to be a lifeguard and um, I did have to fish a couple of people out of the school pool. And what people do, maybe you have the experience if you're swimming and you suddenly start thinking you're out of your depth, you'll panic and you'll grab the person nearest to you. If that person's a lifeguard, you'll want to grab them round their neck because that's the most secure place for you. But it's dreadfully short-sighted because you've just throttled him and he's dead as well. <laughs> In fact, we're taught to deliberately submerge yourself and them so they will let go. And failing that, well, I was at a boys' school, you hit them where it hurts. <laughs> um, but basically... In trusting somebody, and in that lifeguard situation, you have to do something completely counterintuitive. You have to relax and just try and float. And the lifeguard will just use one hand by your chin, paddle away, and you'll be safe. But try explaining that to somebody who thinks they're drowning. Anyway, back to... Um, it's a good illustration, the lifeguard and the, the swimmer, really. Such steps broadly correspond to Martin Luther's spirit. I've just done that, haven't I? Right, faith. So faith means knowing, faith means trusting, and faith means committing. Now these three progressive steps, which are characteristic of love relationships, can also be found in the Christian faith. Faith means knowing God through his word. Christians are given the unique privilege of not only believing in God, but knowing him. Here's an essential component of personal life experience. This is because faith is not just an ideology. We are not merely cultural Christians, nor even a religion with dogma and rites. But faith is above all a relationship, a personal relationship with Christ. To the believer, God is neither it nor even just he. Instead, God is a close you. And this is described wonderfully in the first sentence of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus summarized this idea in a crucial statement, and this is eternal life, that, you, that they know you, the only true God. Now how can we get to know God? We know God at first through his verbal revelation, the written word. Every Christian's spiritual experience starts from faith in the scriptures the deeply held conviction that the Bible is the word of God, that God has caused events to happen, that he caused his authorised spokespersons to uh, comment on those events, and then it has been recorded and reliably passed down the centuries. And this was Martin Luther's first step. He applied himself to reading 
and rereading the Bible, and especially the letter to the Romans. Well, knowledge is then followed by trust. Faith in the Word leads to faith in grace. Every love relationship involves trust. And this was Martin Luther's second step in his experience. God's revelation started with spoken words, reaches its full splendor in Christ, the word par excellence. Christ is said to be the image of the invisible God. Discovering and appropriating the grace of God in my life involves trusting that Christ not only died, but that he died for me. The grace of Christ in the cross is the core and the climax of faith. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, consider or discover him who endured such opposition from sinners, the writer to the Hebrews records. So having discovered the grace of God in Christ, faith moves to answering God's love in Christ with my love. Trust, in other words, leads to commitment, the third necessary component in a love relationship. The cross of Christ allows me to understand that God has already taken the first step and that now it's my turn to give an answer. In this respect, Christianity is the opposite of religion. Religions go from bottom to top, describing the toils of human beings trying to reach God. But the Christian faith is the exact opposite. It goes from top to bottom, describing God's toils, his efforts to reach us as human beings. An historical example of this commitment, which stems from an answer to God's loves, is found in the 18th century, in uh, the life of Count Nicholas Ludwig van Zinzendorf, who was deeply moved by a painting of Christ crucified by Domenico Fetti. It had underneath it an inscription in Latin, which in English is saying, this I suffered for you. Now what will you do for me? As an answer to that question, Zinzendorf's life changed. He founded the community of the Moravian Brethren, a movement of spiritual awakening which had quite a significance in his time. In fact, the Moravians were who Wesley met on a ship in 1736 when he was crossing the Atlantic. And he was well impressed by them, the way in which they would serve the lowest of the people on that ship and how calm and composed they were in the most violent of storms because of their trust and their commitment to their Lord. Now the consequences of such faith, the righteous, the first consequence of faith is that it makes us righteous. That's the first branch of our tree. The apostle puts it in very positive terms. Therefore, since we've been justified or declared righteous by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. Faith produces an indispensable moral cleanliness. It's indispensable since Paul also records that there's no one righteous, not even one. We're all sinners in the eyes of God. And this is one of the central tenets of the Reformation. Grace cleanses us of sin by means of transference. Martin Luther called it the sweet and wonderful exchange. By believing, sin is transferred to or is put upon Christ, and Christ's righteousness is transferred to the sinner, to me. Now, Scripture uses the picture of people exchanging or swapping dirty old rags that they're wearing for a fine robe of righteousness. By faith, the sinner is declared righteous, even if not perfect yet. Luther wrote, simultaneously just and sinful. And so with this formula, Luther was saying, in our justification, we are one and the same time righteous or just and sinners. Now, if he would say that we are at the same time and in the same relationship, just and sinners, that would be a contradiction in terms. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying from one perspective, in one sense, we are just. And yet in another sense, from a different perspective, we are sinners. And how he defines that is simple. In and of ourselves, under the analysis of God's scrutiny, we still have sin. We are still sinners. But by imputation and by faith in Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is now transferred to our account, then we are considered just or righteous. And this is the very heart of the gospel the divine exchange. Think about it. Will I be judged in order to get into heaven by my righteousness or by the righteousness of Christ? If I had to trust my righteousness to get into heaven, I would completely and utterly despair of any possibility of ever being redeemed. But when we see that the righteousness that is ours by faith is the perfect righteousness of Christ, then we see how glorious the good news of the gospel is. The good news is simply this. I can be reconciled to God. I can be justified by God, not on the basis of what I did, but on the basis of what has been accomplished for me by Christ. At the heart of the gospel is this double imputation. My sin is imputed to Jesus, and his righteousness is imputed to me. And in this twofold transaction, we see that God, who does not negotiate sin, who doesn't compromise his own integrity with our salvation, but who rather punishes sin fully and really, after it has been imputed to Jesus, retains his own righteousness, and so he is both just and the justifier. So my sin goes to Jesus 
and his righteousness comes to me in the sight of God. John Stott, in his classic book, The Cross of Christ, writes, For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, Genesis 3, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. For myself, stop rights of uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is enough, affirming the glorious exchange that the sinless Christ was made sin by imputation with our sins in order that in Christ we might become righteous by imputation with his righteousness. In consequence, Christ has no sin but ours and we have no righteousness but his. And what's more, justification before God allows us to live righteously before men. The moral and personal component is followed by the social and community dimension of faith. The order of these factors is important. True righteousness starts with justification before God. Christian ethics stem from faith. They are not mere humanism, seeking to build men starting from men. Justice among men is only possible starting from justification before God. And the second consequence of faith is life shall live. Faith produces life. In the second branch, we find the promise of life, the word of hope. And we all need to hear hope in a world which is dark and confusing. Faith is essential for life, here and now, but also for the great beyond in the afterlife. Now let's see how fruitful this branch is. In one of his most memorable quotes, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, John 10.10. The word full or abundant means superior, optimal, a life of quality in the original. And three examples illustrate how Jesus gives full or abundant or optimal life. The first is that faith in Christ illuminates I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, Jesus said. His light gives a deep meaning to life and to people and identity. It replaces the despairing cry from Ecclesiastes of meaningless, meaninglessness, all is meaninglessness, with an exultant fullness. All is fullness. Faith in Christ transforms, the Apostle Paul writes, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. His power over the centuries has changed the lives of millions of men and women. And faith in Christ restores, Paul writes, from his own experience of God's grace, that my grace is sufficient for you, For my power is made perfect in weakness. His grace empowers 
and restores the weakest, the poor in the broadest sense. Jesus has rescued from the pit of existential misery millions of deprived people because he will not break the bruised reed and he will not put out a smouldering wick, as Isaiah says. Faith in Christ invigorates people, but also transforms society. The best example is something we celebrated less than two years ago, which was the Protestant Reformation. Above all, thanks to the spreading of the Bible, which had great influence throughout the world in societies then and subsequently, Due to the Reformation, all spheres of life, including economics and politics, received the boost of a living, renewed faith. The effects of the Reformation mindset lasted well into the 1960s, when, for example, out of the 15 wealthiest nations, 13 had a Protestant heritage. There was that sense that we are here for a purpose, that we are stewards of God's great world and we are to make the very best use of it for ourselves and others, all to the glory of God. And that mindset of purposefulness, coupled with honesty so that trade could take place and a restraint on consumption that you could invest, you could save in order to invest and to prosper further, that was the basis of economic development. In politics, Christians in the form of Congregationalists were at the time of Oliver Cromwell almost three centuries ahead of us in the breadth of the franchise. In other words, who could vote? All their members voted in their churches. 300 years before we got to that in the 1920s, British democracy started in Protestant churches. In the arts, this mindset can be found in musicians like Bach and Handel, and in painters like Dürer and uh, Rembrandt, and in a long list of scientists like Bacon, Pascal, Newton, Boyle and Kepler, in philosophers and politicians who were able to experience the full life that faith provides. Abraham uh, Kuyper, the Dutch Prime Minister of just over 100 years ago, believed that God continually influenced the life of believers and daily events could show signs of his working. And he famously said, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest and there is, no, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Life arising from faith doesn't end here, but it keeps going after physical death. In fact, it is, where, it is then that it reaches its zenith, its maximum splendor. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Now, these are transcendental words the promise of eternal life. My eternal destiny after death depends on this tweet. Faith 
is essential to life here, but even more so to the afterlife, the most important tweet in our lives. The righteous shall live by faith. And this is why we need to pay attention to these six words and to meditate on them. If you're not there yet, Jesus' own words are a warm metaphor, an invitation to dine together. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus doesn't force the door. He is waiting for me to open it. If I do so, this love relationship will start, along with the faith that makes us righteous and gives us life forever. Amen.